like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Michael Shakashio, a dog behaviorist whose experience includes serving as past president of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, or IAABC. Shakashio holds some other impressive credentials, including certified dog behavior consultant, CDBC, reportedly one of fewer than 200 CDBCs worldwide, and is the founder of the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and teaches trainers and behavior consultants in more than 20 countries how to work with dog aggression cases. Shikashio offers guidance and consulting to dog owners with aggressive dogs, as well as assisting dog professionals in widening out their expertise in working on aggression by way of webinars, live events, conferences, and his master courses. We'll hear all about how to address dogs with aggression issues and some of the causes of that aggression when I speak with Michael Shikashio in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's show, I'll speak with Sarah Veach, Senior Legislative Specialist at the Humane Society Legislative Fund, in a brief discussion of the recently announced move by the State Department to deny visas to wildlife traffickers who are trying to enter the U.S. Right now, though, let's talk aggressive dogs with Michael, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Michael Shikashio on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Duncan. Great to be here. Oh, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. So sometimes I ask guests about their formative years, usually because they've arrived at a distinctive job and it can be interesting to trace their path and hear their origin story. You, of course, are an animal behaviorist, as we've just mentioned, who specialize in working with aggressive dogs. That's a pretty singular realm. So I'm intrigued to explore how you got here. What role did dogs play or maybe even other animals when you were a kid? Sure. Um, you know, I've grown up, uh, you know, as a dog lover, of course, and uh, I started doing a lot of fostering and rescue work when I was younger. So I started taking foster dogs into my home when I had the chance. And I ended up with over 100 foster dogs over the years. And I realized that uh, many of these dogs needed help. And one of the most common reasons for owner surrender and even euthanasia was uh, behavior issues and aggression being one of them. So I started to catch that behavior bug and wanted to learn more about helping these dogs. I you know, save them from that uh, ultimate fate. And um, that's why I kind of got more into work in aggression cases and specializing it and learning more about it over the years. So um, that's that's kind of where I ended up today. Okay, well, I'm going to go back and maybe uh, develop a few of the things you said, starting with, like, how young were you when you began taking in all these dogs that you reached 100 dogs at a certain point? Actually, it was, it was kind of later on. I was in my mid-20s, maybe. Okay, uh, I see. Yeah, 
when I had a when I had a home. <laughs> right, a place a place to foster them and uh, keep them. Yeah. Right. So when you were a, like a younger kid, were you just kind of like the classic family that had a dog or two and nothing notable beyond that? It only later in your twenties kicked into like, hey, I'm bringing home another dog. Right. You know, I always loved dogs. You know, interestingly enough, I grew up in a, a Japanese uh, household, and so pets weren't viewed quite the same as maybe the quintessential American household. So you know, our dog lived outside. And I always wanted the dog inside. <laughs> uh, I'd argue with my parents about that. So it was uh, different in terms of my childhood. I think that probably fueled a little bit of my uh, having so many dogs in my home. Yeah, <laughs> classic. Dogs at a time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a little bit of a classic case of rebellion. It's like, hey, you're saying I have to keep the dogs outside. Okay, when I get my own place, I'm not only going to keep them inside. I'm going to keep a bunch at any given moment. So uh, Exactly. That's great. So when did that start to translate? As you said, you noticed that fostering there would be behavioral issues, which is why dogs often got surrendered back or worse. So when did you start to piece that together in a way where you thought, hey, maybe just given all the experience I've had just by the anecdotal experience of nothing else of hanging out with 100 dogs or more, when did you start to think maybe I can really intervene and help in this way? So I, uh, you know, again, uh, gradually. So as as being a foster parent or a foster for for dogs, mm-hmm. you know, the rescues start to send you more and more difficult dogs. Sure. The more experience you get because they need those experienced foster homes. Yeah. And so I started taking on these dogs that needed much more help. And you know, I I'd done things anecdotally, learned on my own, and what I read. But I'm the type of guy that just I don't feel uh, right continuing to do that just on, you know, what I read online. So I started to uh, go to school and learn much more and take much more formal routes to learning about dog behavior other than just, you know, seeing a show on TV and trying to apply it at home. And so that, that kind of led to my path. You know, I was, I was doing this all the time. I was actually in the casino industry before I started working mostly with dogs. I started taking on part-time uh, dog training and then it's a kind of similar path many dog trainers and dog behaviors take is they will take on uh, some cases and then end up ballooning into a full-time career. And just, just as a side note, when you say you were in the casino industry, what did that involve? I was I was the head butler at a casino taking care of all the high rollers at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Way back when the, before the uh, implosion of the economy, the first implosion. Back. Right. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, those are probably some good skills to translate to looking after all these dogs at one point or another, too. You right? know, it's, but, it's the people skills that really helped. Yeah. In cases I work now, it's really mostly about the people. The, the dogs, you, you get to see the same things over and over when you're working aggressive behavior. And it, it, it's the people side of the equation that differs every single time. So I think that's that part of the, the job really helped me with what I'm doing now. No doubt. And well, let me actually just quickly say for people who might have just tuned in, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Michael Shikashio, a dog behaviorist who is a certified dog behavior consultant, reportedly uh, one of fewer than 200 of those worldwide. He specializes in dogs with aggression issues. If you'd like to ask Michael a question about aggressive dogs, your dog, some other question, or just offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So you talked about taking some courses and some schooling because I imagine at a certain point your work with dogs kind of went from the sit-stay element to kind of more fundamental behavior of dogs and really trying to understand, especially as the rescues and other places kept sending you more and more challenging dogs. So when did you really start focusing on the behavior of dogs and what shapes it? Yeah, it's it's 
and it's interesting to say that there's there is a delineation between foundational skills like you can sit bay, walk nicely on a leash, and that's what many dog trainers focus on. It's kind of like the medical field where you have general practitioners, doctors, your family practice medicine that kind of has to know a little bit about everything. Yeah, and then you have specialists that are going to focus much more on behavior or even more specialized, such as taking on aggression or separation anxiety as their sole focus. So I started focusing on all everything I could digest about aggressive behavior in dogs um, from both the, uh, what's called the applied behavior analysis perspective, which is uh, the study of animal behavior, and uh, ethology as well, which is kind of the study of animal behavior in their natural environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, those things, those two scientists can apply uh, quite a bit when it comes to working with aggression, because it really is a matter of understanding why the dog is behaving aggressively. Uh, the underlying motivation and the causes for it is, is really important rather than just assigning a personality trait to the dog. And Michael, why, as you were sort of going through these phases, why did you gravitate towards aggression? Just because you saw from all that experience with those hunter dogs, et cetera, that that's kind of where the problem really rested in terms of surrenders or, again, worse. Is that what drew you to aggression in particular? Yeah, because it was kind of the core of, of the whole rescue, of being in rescue and helping dogs find homes and stay in homes in the first place. You yeah. Know, one of the number one reasons for animal surrender and euthanasia in the United States is behavior problems. Sure. Uh, and aggression being one of them. And aggression, you know, there's, there's more tolerance, I feel, now in the society, but there still isn't, there still is a lack of understanding about uh, that, that these dogs can be helped. And so a lot of the time, the dog that might growl at a youngster or uh, do something that's offensive to us as humans, they're often facing, uh, you know, undesirable consequences uh, for something as simple as, uh, you know, that's a natural behavior for many dogs uh, and humans. <laughs> right. Well, no, so it sounds like, a, I think kind of I anticipate, and it sounds like it's going to be the case that one of our running themes here is going to be as much working with, or at least not letting on the working with, but still let, uh, working with the humans in the equation every bit as much as the dogs. Right, right. Yeah, it, 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 you know, the thing is, is that I see so many different perceptions of how people view aggression. Yeah. You know, you might have a dog, for instance, I have a client call me in there, they'll tell me, oh, you know, my, my kid was uh, bitten by my dog. I said, well, what happened? And they'll say, well, he's, he's riding the dog around the house like a pony. And they, that should happen, right? They should, that should, the dog should be fine with that and not, not have any problem with that, not growl about that or anything. And then, yeah, and he's got hip dysplasia, by the way, and he should be able to tolerate that. So you get these really skewed perceptions. Yeah, and they want to get rid of their dog just for growling at the child uh, over something like that. And then you have, of course, the other side of the equation. You have severe cases where children are in danger. Yeah, and, uh, they're 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 not taking it seriously enough. So again, um, uh, kind of navigating those waters with the with the clients is, is a big part of the job. So what do most of us, just regular folks, not know about dogs with aggression? What are things that, as you say in those examples you just gave, I mean, there's some of it's the perception of the human or the, or the people like, well, we got a problem with the dog. And it's like, well, maybe, but maybe not. So w- w- what are some things that just regular dog folks should be aware of or some early signs to look for to determine maybe this is going to be an issue versus just kind of a momentary thing or the, the kid was taunting the dog or teasing the dog almost and, um, you know, sort of making the problem worse. Yeah, I think one of the the number one misconceptions or or things that people I see are 
should be paying attention to that aggression is behavior. It's, it's, so it's not a personality trait. And oftentimes we hear that term, you know, aggressive, that the dog is aggressive or aggressive dog. And I use that term for my, that's the, that's the name of my website just because people search for that term. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just like saying, you know, that guy, Duncan, he's funny. He's a funny guy. And that doesn't mean you're going to be funny all the time. You might use, jokes during certain times, but you're not going to be cracking jokes at a funeral, right? So <laughs> Let's hope not. Yeah, yeah. You're right. They're, they're, they're using aggressive behavior. It, it's a function of an underlying motivation. So they're usually using it because they're fearful of something or maybe they're in pain. But the, the goal of that behavior is to make that threatening or scary thing go away. Yeah. And so uh, if we start to understand that there's an underlying reason for their behavior and not necessarily that that dog is aggressive or they're just a bad dog, um, then we can start to really understand and help the dogs if, if we understand the motivation for that behavior. So uh, definitely something I try to help my clients understand is that there is something in the environment that's triggering that behavior and a motivation for that dog's behavior. Once you unravel those things, then you don't have to worry about calling the dog aggressive. You're just helping the dog in that particular context. Yeah, it's just the dog at that point. It's just the dog that's a client along with the, the human that's the client, I guess. Correct, yeah. right. All right, well, let's take, uh, we have a, a caller here. Let's get them involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Michael Shikashia. Go ahead, please. Hi, I, um, how are you today? Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a female Rottweiler, and um, she, I think she's trying to protect me, but every time I walk her, if a truck goes by, if a kid is on a riding toy, a wheelchair, a motorcycle, anything like that. This dog rears up and has taken me down three or four times. I've broken my leg and uh, put my face in the cement with this girl. And I'm, I, I think she's trying to protect me, but I don't know how to get her to stop doing that. Wow. Can okay. you get any advice at all? Did you say, sorry, I just want to make sure I understood along the way. Did you say you broke your leg at one of these incidents? Yeah. Wow. I was okay. trying to hold on to her and she was, I broke my leg. Takes me, you know, she's over a hundred pounds. Yeah. And uh, when she does that, and another, and she doesn't, and she goes after other dogs, and I really have to like get her in a bear hug when she sees another dog. Wow. Okay, Michael. Well, that certainly sounds like a very strong dog you have there. Um, and you know, yeah. one of the things to <laughs> to consider is is maybe considering just how much you have to you walk her in those incidents right now. So in those contexts, you might decide to you might decide to pare down how far you're walking her just to make life easier for you uh, while you're working on the field. So I'm not to say to never walk her again, but it's a lot easier sometimes just to shorten the, the length of that walk or maybe go in certain areas where you're not seeing all those kids and cars and other dogs and people. Uh, because it, it could be the motivation to protect you, but sometimes the dog is just worried about those things. You might be afraid of those particular things stimuli and so uh -huh. they might be trying to protect themselves as well and so if we uh -huh. can kind of help the dog feel a little bit better in the environment by managing it first and then the next step is to make sure um, you have uh, something to reinforce desirable behavior and what that is is um, finding things your dog really likes that way you can reinforce behavior you like when those things are around but the, the key is making sure you have enough distance from those particular things so let's use a bike for example you might find a place where you you know people are riding by on bikes, but instead of being five feet away, you might be 50 feet away. And when your dog notices those things, you can reinforce her with treats or play or really whatever you know she really likes. So she starts to learn, okay, if I just notice these things without pulling mom down to the ground or really making a fuss about it, it'll pay off way better for me than if I have bark and lunge at these things. 
And over time, you decrease that distance. And before you know it, you're going to be able to walk five feet away from those things without her lunging because she's going to learn that, oh, I know what to do instead. Now, the other side of the equation uh-huh. here is that she starts to learn that whenever a bite goes by, it's a good thing because that's when mom's going to give me treats or play with me or play tug again, whatever she really likes. And it starts to create this positive association with those things going by. So that's a that's a mm-hmm. core concept I use in many of my cases. It's really changing the association of how the dog feels about those particular things. Now, in your case, you also might look at what kind of equipment you're using to walk her. Uh, because if you're getting pulled down to the ground, I worry about the other end of the leash, too, which is you, and making sure that you feel comfortable walking there. So uh, uh, sometimes front clip harnesses can be very helpful for that, or even a head halter. Uh, if you acclimate it well to her and she gets comfortable wearing that, that can give you a lot of leverage to help walk her so you don't get pulled down to the ground and also so you feel safer walking her. Wow, a right. bunch, bunch of great suggestions. Okay, well, thank you for your call. Okay, thank you. So... Michael, those all seem like very reasonable things. And I guess one of the reasons that you're this kind of a specialized expert is that I think a lot of us wouldn't necessarily think something as relatively simple as your initial thing about maybe take the dog on a walk in a different area, still get the walk in. Maybe it's a shorter walk, but mainly it's not in the same place that you go. I mean, I think a lot of us would think, okay, what can I do differently? But they wouldn't necessarily say, hey, why don't I just go on a walk in a whole different area right off the bat? Right. And it's a big part of managing aggression is that management component. We've got to prevent the dog from practicing the behavior. It's the same as any other kind of dog training or dog behavior. So, you know, if you don't want your dog to start stealing food off the counter, you can't leave your turkey sandwich up there or your food up there because if the dog grabs it, they're going to remember that the next time. Like, oh, yeah. Right. And grab that, and it, and it ends up reinforcing that behavior. So with aggression especially, it's highly reinforcing to make something scary go away, and we want to prevent the dog from practicing that behavior while we're, while we're helping them uh, through, the, through the process. Yeah. So if the let's take, go back to our caller for a moment. So, so let's say she takes the dog on a shorter end or especially different location walk and gets the dog to associate some positive things with not barking or going nuts, gets a treat or whatever and thinks, hey, a bike or whatever isn't so bad after all. And then maybe changes the equipment a little bit. So hopefully that does it. But uh, at a certain point, let's say the same scenario and tries those things and still having that same kind of struggle on a walk. Is that the point at which then she would contact you or someone that does what you do? You know, I would suggest actually she would contact somebody like me before uh, even work with that because it's uh, when anybody's getting hurt. You know, if you're if you're getting pulled down, your legs getting broken, that's a very yeah. severe case. You know, that's, yeah, that's dangerous for the person. And so I, I would kind of seek more uh, past just um, you know advice online or even on a call because it requires in person assistance. It's kind of like teaching somebody how to ride a bike over the phone. Uh, it's very, there's kind of there's mechanical skills that are involved with walking on a leash handling the leash and, uh, you know, how to reinforce the dog and all of that needs to come into play. So it's the type of case I would recommend, you know, definitely in-person help for. Yeah. Okay. Because that's, it seemed like that. I mean, you made such great suggestions, but I kept in my head, kept thinking, okay, at one point this dog pulled on her so vigorously that she broke her leg. And it's like, it seems like that puts it into a different realm almost automatically. Right. And, and when I have clients like that, you always, again, have to take into account how they're feeling. You know, they're putting on a brave face, but a lot, a lot of times they're very scared or concerned about even going out of the house on a leash with their dog. And you can't blame them. You have to understand that they're risking injury by just trying to, you know, take their dog out for exercise. 
And that's the other thing, too. Many people are focused on exercise, exercise, exercise. You know, a tired dog is a good dog, but that not, that's not necessarily true all the time. It can actually be a stressed dog is a bad dog because taking them out might seem like they're tired, but they're just getting more stressed by all those different things they have to experience in the world. And so we have to balance that into the equation when working on our behavior plan. Yeah, I, I wondered about that because when you were saying, well, here's this 100-pound Rottweiler, so you could take them on a shorter walk and you just think, well, yeah, that's, especially if it's a different path, a different walk altogether where it's located. But I also thought, yeah, well, do, does that shortchange the dog at all on, on the exercise that, that he might need on a given day? Right. It's important to, uh, all, all animals that you know require a certain amount of enrichment, both physical and mental enrichment to live good lives. And we need to ensure we're balancing that, especially in aggression cases. What happens is people will get embarrassed or nervous about something. So they put the dog away or maybe they go for less walk. Or when people come over, they put the dog in another room in a crate. And so the dog starts to have restrictions placed on just normal routine, normal life. And and that's what the vicious cycle is in aggression cases. Because that management can become addicting to the owner because now they don't have to worry about their dog lunging or growling, biting Uncle Bob that comes over for Thanksgiving. They're just managing the dog, which impacts enrichment. So we got to provide alternative enrichment activities, you know, such as training in the home or backyard agility or nose work. Or there's many, many different things you can do to replace that walk uh, that are going to provide the same or if not more enrichment for the animal. And I guess the key challenge for the, uh, the human part of this is knowing when to seek that help, like if if there's some things, again, this case with the collar, again, once we hit the broken leg part, it seemed like, okay, well, this requires probably some professional intervention of, of someone like you. But I think other things are probably are less clear cut to people of like, well, this is concerning, but maybe it's a phase or maybe uh, it's just some sort of fleeting thing that is just happening at that moment. And I guess trying to recognize when it's more than that or when, they, you know what, no, I actually probably do need a behaviorist to help with this. I guess that's probably the key challenge for a lot of folks. It is. It is. It's usually, you know, I don't get the calls until the dog has actually bitten somebody, mm. and because many people will think, "Well, this will go away," or "Is a phase," or "This, you know, this is something I can deal with on my own," or they they go to Doctor Google and try to fix things on their own, which can, of course, uh, you know, be too late in some cases. So, uh, but there is always help, you know, for for dogs that have bitten. There's always uh, something that can be done with regards to at least management. And if not, behavior change. Uh, but it is important to recognize those things. And people are going to have, they're going to recognize these things on their own timeline. So that's a matter of what's happening in their life and just how severe they're viewing that incident or those incidents. Yeah. Again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Michael Shikashio, an accomplished behaviorist who specializes in helping dogs overcome aggression issues. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So I guess especially when we move more into the behaviorist realm, there's a bit of alphabet soup to some of this. Uh, Like, for example, an important acronym is IAABC. Can you explain what organization those letters represent and more to the point what that organization does or what its mission is? Sure. The IWBC is the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. And they have a, uh, they uh, also um, have divisions in a number of species. So not just dogs, they have cats, uh, parrots, horses, working animals, and shelter as well. They've concentrated a lot on the shelter animals. Um, and they also offer certification for uh, behavior consultants that are looking to work with animal behavior. And that's a, a very rigorous process in which the consultants must pass an exam 
uh, it's peer-reviewed, and it's sort of like writing a, your master's thesis. That's what a lot of the applicants compare it to. But it does um, ensure that a, an applicant is, um, has the knowledge and skills to address severe behavior problems such as that. So that the, the acronym that comes out for uh, DOGS is the CDBC, the Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. Um, and it's one of uh, several uh, acronyms out there for working with behavior. There's the also the Certified Applied Animal Behaviors. There's the Board Certified Veterinary Behaviors that are also specialists, and I want to make sure I give them a shout-out on the show because uh, for people looking for help, uh, those, those folks also are uh, incredibly knowledgeable about behavior. And unfortunately, dog training is an unregulated industry, so it's the buy-everywhere kind of situation. So I always uh, recommend looking for um, you know, reputable certifications before hiring somebody. Yeah, and again, some of those acronyms are, are critical because I think, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you are a certified dog behavior consultant. And if I do understand this correctly, that is pretty rarefied company, right? That gets a couple hundred or so worldwide, if I understand this. Something like that. Could be probably a little bit more than that by now. It's okay. A couple of years since I, I was president of the IWBC, but it's somewhere around that number. And then there's even lesser number of CADs or the Certified Applied Animal Behaviors to the Behavior Society, and even lesser board-certified uh, cert, um, veterinary behaviors. There's less than 100 in the entire world. Wow. So there's, there's a limited number of, um, you know, highly, highly qualified folks to work with, uh, at least certified folks. You know, there's, there's a lot of qualified folks that might not have letters. It's just that uh, they're hard to uh, differentiate if to the layperson just out shopping for help for their dog. Right. But it sounds like the key thing that you noted a moment ago is that uh, training is not really regulated. So if you have a problem or an issue with your dog and you're seeking help, you probably, uh, I'm guessing, would be, depending on the issue itself, of course, be better served by finding a behaviorist, finding someone that's CDBC or someone that's uh, got some kind of certification, just so you start off knowing that what they know. Absolutely. It's, it's really important, especially with aggressive behavior because you really don't want to take any chances. There's a lot of risks involved. There's a lot of ramifications, you know, from a, not only for the dog and what can happen if they bite again, uh, but from a, from a legal standpoint, the liability involved when a dog bites, especially in this country. And so it's something to, it's, that's, that's why, again, I, I really focused on making sure people do find uh, well-qualified and certified help for their dogs with aggressive behaviors. Okay, great. So we've got some uh, emails and we've got another phone call too. We're going to take one of those calls in a sec. But one of the emails says, I echo your guest's suggestion to use a harness, change the entire way our 85-pound Labrador responded on walks after being dragged through hedges while he chased a cat. I purchased a good harness with a handle. So much easier when you can keep them by your side and more comfortable for them as well. So, Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I should clarify that that should be a front clip harness. Uh, rear clip harnesses uh, typically give the dog a little bit more leverage, and the front clip harnesses kind of clip on the chest, uh, and that basically gives you a little power steering when they do pull. Okay, I always love power steering. That's good. Okay, let's take another uh, call. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Michael Shikashio. Hi, too. Go ahead, please. Oh, hi. Hello. Hi. Um, I have a dog who, I, for the first like year I had her, I'd take her to the dog park, and it was it was great. Um, and then I wonder if she had an incident or two, but now. She's real aggressive towards other dogs, um, especially like in the context of a dog park or something like that. I wonder like how you'd start uh, helping her with that. So dog parks for me are like bars. 
Um, okay. Yeah. You know, we go there to have fun and uh, socialize, but you never know. Sometimes a, a bar fight breaks out, or uh, you know, somebody advances your your dog in a way that's inappropriate. And so you have to be careful with dog parks. It's not that that uh, you can't take a dog to a dog park. You just have to be careful of who's there. Uh, so there's a potential maybe a negative incident or two happened with your dog. Uh, and so usually when I when I have clients that have had their dogs have had a negative experience in the dog park, we look for socialization, uh, uh, continued socialization, but in a different manner. Usually that means one or two other dogs uh, rather than 20 or 30 other dogs uh, that are well socialized. So other social teachers that can help that dog sort of say, okay, not all dogs are bad. In fact, this dog is actually very fun and safe. And so trying to find some uh, if you have friends or family that do have well-socialized dogs, dogs that do well with many other dogs, can often help dogs like yours kind of uh, learn again that dogs are safe. Now, there are there are some caveats. I want to make sure that I state that, you know, you have each case is individual and you have to be careful if there's any kind of uh, fight history or bite history with your dog. You're going to want to seek professional help for that because you don't want to, of course, damage the other dog you're trying to use for social aspects. But uh, for the, yeah. I think the good rule of thumb for you would be to avoid dog parks and, um, uh, you know, try to find other social superstars that can really so help your dog. I guess, like, as far as in just the, the context of St. Pete, um, like, my dog really needs to run every once in a while. She, she's so much energy somewhere off-leash, mm-hmm. um, and I just don't know where to take her other than a dog park, you know. Yeah, so some places there, there's, um, you know, in ballparks, places where, you know, off-time ballparks that are fenced in, uh, places like that. There's actually some places that rent locations. You can rent space. Uh, many dog training facilities are adding that to their menu where you can just rent the space for a half hour and let your dog run free. Uh, indoor, even space, they can do that. The large indoor dog training facilities will do that as well. Dog daycares on the off hours. So there are some options for folks in the more populated areas in the cities uh, for off-leash um, time. Um, and, you know, certainly driving out to, to other areas is something I recommend to my city clients as well to give their dog that opportunity. Uh, because, yes, some dogs do need that all-out running time. And so searching for those locations that you have that opportunity can be uh, very beneficial for your dog. Okay, we're going to run, but thank you so much for your call. Thank you. So again, my guest is Michael Shikashio. The last name is spelled S-H-I-K-A-S-H-I-O. And the website is aggressivedog.com. And Michael, among our emailers, one wrote him the question that sort of dovetails with the question I was going to ask. So I'm just going to read the, this emailer's question. I have a rescue that is very aggressive with some dogs, but friendly with others. She loves people, including kids. How do I figure out what triggers her and help her be less aggressive? So it's a, it's a broad question and um, one that, again, if you look at the environment, I always ask uh, clients, you know, what did you see rather than what do you think the dog is doing or why do you think the dog is doing that first? So, you know, what did you see in the environment? Did, was it the child reaching towards the dog's bone or was it the child petting the dog or was it the child just approaching the dog? You know, so think about what the common, it's called the antecedent, so the trigger for the behavior. Uh, once you identify that, usually you uncover a common theme for what the dog's aggressive behavior is directed at. Uh, and it's and you'll see that it's in every single case, there's always an antecedent, almost always an antecedent for the dog's behavior. And you'll start to see that unravel if you look kind of objectively uh, at those at the environment and what's happening at that time. Okay, thank you. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Michael Shikashio. Hi, it's you. Go ahead. Did you have a question for Michael? Hello. 
Okay, I guess we lost him. Okay, so uh, here, here's my another thought I had, just recognizing that over the course of this pandemic, uh, one of the stories that's been recurring is how many shelters, rescues, et cetera, have seen just a huge surge in people adopting dogs. They're, they're, they're in lockdown. They thought, well, we're going to adopt a dog at a certain point. Let's do it now. So especially for some of those folks who might be newer dog people, what are some things that people should be aware of that could sort of inadvertently cultivate some aggressive behavior? Um, you know, that's a, one of the things I'm seeing commonly now, actually, during the pandemic, I was getting a spike in cases where the dog's actually not getting enough rest. Uh, so they go from a schedule of, you know, the person's out of the house, nine to five. The dog's getting that time to just, just um, you know, relax during the day. And, and many people think the dog's going to be bored. And there's some truth to that. Yes, we want to make sure we're providing enough enrichment again. But what's happening is now that the kids are home, and everybody's home, the dog's actually being disturbed all day long. People are petting the dog and they're kind of satisfying their own human needs to touch the dog and interact with the dog. And the dog actually is getting not enough sleep and rest. And so the dog is getting grumpy because they're not getting enough sleep. And the next thing you know, I'm getting calls about people, you know, the dog snapping at people while it's resting or laying down or getting enough agitated. So those are one of the first things folks on is just making sure the dog's needs are met. Uh, make sure the dog has its enough time to rest and, and a safe space to go to. Uh, when they want to. Uh, and the other common thing I'm seeing a lot, too, is the dog protecting resources. So what that means is dogs protecting food, toys, bones, resting spots, or even people. And that's something to pay attention to, especially with new dogs. They're coming to a new home. And sometimes it's like Disney World for many dogs because we're just spoiling these dogs with plenty of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. Plenty of toys and things like that. But uh, we often see the dogs like, this is really great. And there's, these resources are really valuable to me. So now I'm going to protect them. And so how people go about uh, managing those things and, and uh, not just taking them away. I always recommend trading for a resource. So if the dog's got a toy, give them a cookie for giving up that toy so you can put it away. Or maybe if they're on a dog bed or on your couch and you want them uh, to move so you can sit next to them, you can, again, ask them to move, give them a cookie for moving. So that way there's that positive uh, association with giving up a resource. So that way it's not just taken away. That's those are probably the two most common things I'm seeing during the pandemic. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, one of the things you're seeing is that dogs aren't getting enough rest. Uh, just because it seems like we all think of like I wish I got as much rest as my dog got, but uh, but I but I can see what you're what, what you mean about just the the combination of things that probably prevent these days maybe especially uh, a dog from getting the kind of rest that he or she really does need. So right. So I have kind of a longer email, but I'm going to read it because I think it may be valuable on a couple levels. So it says, uh, I rehomed a seven-year-old male Australian shepherd. He grew up on a farm with five children and was sweet and gentle. He had never been to a vet as the owners gave him all of his immunizations. First vet visit for neutering made sure everyone knew he had never been to a vet and might feel scared. He did okay. Second visit in six months for blood work. He felt scared when tech started blood draw and tried to wiggle away. Two more techs came in to hold him down and he quote-unquote snapped but never bit. Tex told me I was the problem and took him out of the room, muzzled and held him down to get the blood. Most recent visit, Tech told me he snapped at her when she tried to get a fecal sample and wasn't going to try again. They have now labeled him an aggressive dog. I think he's really scared and now associates the vet with things that hurt. This is a smart, gentle dog and is acting out at the vet. Thinking about having home visit vets going forward, any suggestions? Thank you. 
Yes, so that that last sentence there is a great idea, home visit. That um, one one resource for the listeners is called the Fear Free. Fear Free veterinary uh, practices are certified in low restraint and low stress handling. So their techniques are kind of looking at the dog's needs and if they're scared and uh, making adjustments in the veterinary practice to help the dogs in those environments. And so they do all kinds of uh, great techniques to help the dogs feel much more comfortable. And it's and it's unfortunate that that's happening. You know, something, you know, we would never consider, like, taking a child away from their parents and pinning them down and holding them and restraining them to give them shots. Uh, but unfortunately, it still happens to dogs. And, you know, again, how we approach it in the veterinary practice and what we do with the dogs can make the, the difference between future visits going well and not. And so, I, you know, again, I highly recommend uh, for clients that are want to be proactive or people that want to be proactive about veterinary visits is just go to the vet's office. That, uh, again, a fear-free practice is my preference, but just to walk around and everybody's giving the dogs cookies, but there's no poking, prodding, or restraining. So you do a few visits like that, and the dog's like, well, this place is actually pretty cool because every time I go there, everybody's giving me cookies, and there's nothing bad happening. And so the dog gets used to the environment or even the exam room, you know, and, and many vet practices will allow this. Right now, the pandemic is making things tougher, but again, once that, uh, once things change, it's a good idea to just get there and, and acclimate the dog to that environment so they feel comfortable and even look forward to going to that place. Uh, so it's not always a place where uh, they're getting poked and prodded and stuck with needles and things like that. Yeah, it really sounds like we're in our final moments here, Michael, but it really sounds like, for that reason in particular, but just generally kind of a theme it seems like that's emergent or the course of our conversation is that where people might sort of wait and say, oh, well, that was maybe just because of what was happening that afternoon or on the street that, you know, day or whatever, that people probably aren't as likely as maybe they should be to, to seek the kind of help sooner uh, and and therefore probably curtail a problem from, from growing larger. Right. It, it, one of the things that I, if I had a, a wish list is to be uh, proactive maintenance to help dogs with any of these issues that can crop up. And, you know, it's, just, it's like getting, changing the smoke, you know, the batteries in your smoke detectors proactively rather than waiting for that beat to happen. Same thing for dogs. If we can do all these things, we're getting them to the vet's office ahead of time, making positive things happen there, uh, trading for toys, um, teaching them that, you know, when they see other dogs, before they need to start barking and lunging at them, when they see other dogs, cookies happen. Uh, when strangers or the mailman shows up, cookies happen. Good things happen when these typically scary or threatening events that can uh, end up creeping up into many dogs' world. If we proactively uh, approach those things, then we can avoid many things happening in the first place. And it's much cheaper to do so if you do so early on. <laughs> yeah, no, it really sounds like, and that sounds like the perfect uh, point at which to leave our conversation. So thank you, Michael. This has been Michael Shikashio. Again, it's S-H-I-K-A-S-H-I-O. His website is Aggressive Dog. Com, and there's all kinds of information about consultations and webinars and information, whether you're just a dog owner or a dog professional who's looking to get more specialized training, etc. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. And uh, I think we've all uh, learned a lot here about uh, dogs and aggressive dogs and how to keep them from uh, becoming aggressive dogs in some cases. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Sarah Veach of the Humane Society Legislative Fund about the recently announced move by the State Department to deny visas to wildlife traffickers seeking to enter the U.S. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece, fittingly enough, about dog trainers. Here's Bill Burr with part of a piece called Dog Trainer on today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Yeah, I come back four days later, the dog's laying at the guy's feet, right? 
He's rubbing her belly. She's reaching up, playing with his goatee. And he goes, go ahead, have a, have a seat. Why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, take me through your day with this dog? Immediately, I started getting like this first 48 vibe, right? Like they're coming at me. So I got like defensive. I'm like, what do you mean? I take it for a hike every morning. He goes, that's good, that's good. Anything, you know, special happen on the hike? I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. She takes it, I pick it up. It's like, all right, easy. You play any games with her? I go, yeah, at the end of the hike. I let her, I let her, you know, for reward for going on the hike, I let her run up the stairs by herself. I go, go on, Cleo. I let her run up the stairs, and I count five, 1,000, and then I run up there, and then we start wrestling. Put her in a headlock, sweep her front legs, ah, right? But her tail's wagging, you know? She's not growling. I go, that's a good thing, right? He's like, no, it's horrible. I'm like, why? He goes, you just taught your dog to claim the house and then fight for it every day after the hike. No wonder this thing's trying to attack the mailman, you know? So then I got upset. I'm like, wait a minute, dude. You're telling me, like, I can't even play with my dog? He's like, no, you can play with it, but you got to bring that energy back down. The problem is, is you keep amping this thing up, getting that Mike Singletary look on his face. Then by the time you walk out, doesn't matter if you're relaxed. Mentally, the dog is like walking through the tunnel at the Rose Bowl, like, this is what we play for. Somebody hit somebody. That was Bill Burr in today's Comedy Corner with a portion of a piece called Dog Trainer, taken from his album, You People Are All the Same. Now it's time to speak with Sarah Veach, Senior Legislative Specialist at the Humane Society Legislative Fund, about that recent decision by the State Department that appears to have important implications for wildlife traffickers entering the U.S. This is Sarah Veach on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Let's just sort of jump in. What prompted the State Department to make this move? Why now in particular? Yeah, so this um, this policy has been under discussion for a couple years now, um, and they finally released it on the heels of their 2020 national strategy to combat wildlife trafficking. They do an annual review every year, and so this is coming out kind of in conjunction with that. Um, back in 2017, we had a State Department memo um, outlining the need for this kind of policy. You know, our people on the front line, so to speak, and embassies have been asking for this kind of policy guidance. And that's because there's a technical loophole. Um, embassies can deny foreign nationals entry to the U.S. on grounds of things like heinous crimes, multiple criminal convictions, money laundering, and things like that. But if a known wildlife trafficker doesn't have those um, sort of extra crimes, so to speak, then State Department officials' hands were tied. Um, and so we got involved with Congress on this issue. Um, and we pushed them because there seemed to be uncertainty on whether State Department had the legal authority already or Congress commercial action was needed. Um, and as of a November 2019 um, House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee meeting, we do now know that they have on record that um, they have the legal authority. So all that was left was getting this internal policy guidance out on it. And this is not out of the blue. So the Obama administration set up the presidential task force to combat wildlife trafficking. Um, Congress enacted the End Wildlife Trafficking Act and an executive order on transnational trafficking that included wildlife trafficking was one of the very first executive orders that Trump signed um, when he assumed office four years ago. So all of this has finally been elevating wildlife trafficking to the serious widespread crime that it is. Um, and it's also timely in terms of coinciding with the global discussions on COVID and wildlife trade. Our, yeah. treatment of, yeah, our treatment of animals in both the legal and illegal wildlife trade is understood to be linked to these outbreaks in humans like SARS and COVID. So it's, it's very timely on, on multiple levels there. 
For sure. I mean, one thing that I do wonder about, and I I kind of mentioned this in a a note to you in a prelude to our interviews, uh, and really, as you know better than I do, many wildlife traffickers are part of a sophisticated like criminal syndicate. So I'm wondering how the State Department officials charged with implementing this policy will necessarily know a given traveler seeking a visa is a wildlife trafficker. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we have programs across multiple agencies um, who study these syndicates who are involved in fighting these groups, um, our embassies, USAID, Fish and Wildlife Service, State Department, um, and a couple others, they all have teams that are following movements and uh, working to identify those involved in these syndicates. Um, And then we have the Presidential Task Force, as I mentioned, um, that includes all of these agencies that are um, putting out their annual review on their activities, on what they're learning about these syndicates. um, And then this task force helps coordinate all of the information and making sure that our agencies are talking to each other, sharing this information, and really being able to identify all of these individuals, Um, which is why it's really important that that we get two of our bills passed (laughs) that we're working on. One is the End Wildlife Traffic Reauthorization and Improvements Act, um, and that reauthorizes the task force, which is set to dissolve next October. Um, and of course, that's really important so that these agencies have that sort of federal coordination at that level. Um, and the other one is the Preventing Future Pandemics Act, um, which will put 50 new Fish and Wildlife Service officials in embassies in countries known to traffic wildlife. So that's really important in furthering yeah. the effectiveness and impact of the State Department policy. We need those boots on the ground. We need them um, to to be able to identify these people. They're all lo- they're very low. Um, in their networks and, and figuring it out. Now, some of this is probably rhetorical, but maybe not necessarily all of it. The primary countries that we're concerned about in terms of wildlife traffickers coming from whatever that country is to the U.S. Yeah, so that is um, evaluated every year, which is another <laughs> big component of this task force, um, where there it is their task um, from that original and wildlife trafficking bill that Congress passed in 2016. It is their job to evaluate the countries. Um, and so every year in their annual review, they put out a list of countries of concern and countries of focus. So their countries of concern are going to be countries where there's known wildlife trafficking activity happening um, within their borders. And then you have your uh, focus countries, which are countries that have an even bigger problem where it's suspected that government are involved in the wildlife trafficking, where the corruption has reached that high level. Um, and so we've got that list uh, published every year in that review. And I you know, urge everybody to go check that, that out. Well, can you just say, even though, like I say, some of these that are at the top of the list, I think most of us would probably anticipate. But can you just off the top of your head, just give us a few of the countries that are particularly uh, problematic in this way? Oh, I did not <laughs> grab those. Okay. All right. No. Okay. No problem. So perhaps depending on how this is really implemented, and it sounds like there's growing amount of the sort of really like intelligence really that will be fed in that will help the implementation and enforcement of this policy. So what do you think the implications are short term and maybe even a little bit longer term? Um, these. It's going to be a huge, a huge win for protecting animals and people. Um, it's going to really disrupt the movement of traffickers. So that includes people, products, and money flows. Um, the Treasury Department in recent years has already imposed sanctions on a couple of wildlife trafficking networks. So this new policy will add even more teeth to that effort um, to ensure that wildlife traffickers aren't able to find safe harbor within our borders. Um, and, you know, this policy is already being used for... Um, for other sorts of activities like drug trafficking, human trafficking, money laundering, and terrorism. And so they're extending and kind of elevating wildlife trafficking to put it on par with all of those. Um, and as I said, it's a huge deal for animals. Wildlife yeah. timber 
trafficking is a serious transnational crime activities. Um, and they, you know, on one side, kind of one hand, um, they threaten national security, undermine economic prosperity, fuel corruption, spread disease. Um, our law enforcement officials have found that there are personnel and money and arms links between wildlife trafficking syndicates and other militarized criminal groups, including terrorists. Um, and then kind of on the other hand, with the environmental piece that, again, plays into all of that is that it's a huge threat to the survival of some of our world's most ecologically and culturally important animals. We have rhinoceroses, elephants, pangolins, and tigers. Um, and what pe most people don't know is that the U.S. is one of the world's largest hubs for wildlife trafficking activity, uh, whether that be as a destination or as a through fair. Yeah. And it's not just for, like, skins and boots. Um, but also for traditional medicines and it's live animals too for entertainment um, or the exotic pet industry. Yeah. So the new policy tool will really help us disrupt the movements of, and business of wildlife traffickers, which in turn will disrupt the bigger transnational criminal organizations and make it harder for them to smuggle illegal wildlife and timber. I mean, there's there are really so many facets of security for um, our environment, people around the world for this. Well, this sounds really, really encouraging and uh, I'm really uh, going to be hopeful that this does what it, in the best case scenario could well do. So thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us and helping us better understand this move by the State Department. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm Duncan Strauss, and you're listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WMF. It's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Lay. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. Right now, though, we're going to play Name That Animal Tune. I'll be offering a Talking Animals t-shirt to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. I'll name that animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. If you can name that animal tune, we'll take your guest off the air because we have reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Next Wednesday, we'll be doing a show as part of WMNF's devotion to covering disability issues. And my guest will be Michael Hinkson, blind since birth, fascinating guy, including a wild 9-11 story. It's WMNF Tampa. Thanks.